Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. Living Faith features the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church from our Sunday morning and evening services, as well as our Wednesday night Bible studies for students. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the lost might be saved and the Christian might be equipped. God's primary tool for this kind of growth is the regular preaching and teaching of His Word. That's why here at First Baptist, our prayer echoes that of the psalm. Above all else, God's Word and God's name should be exalted. This is part two of our current Sunday evening series entitled, What is the Church? 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll start in verse 10. Tonight we continue our series that I started last week on Sunday night called What is the Church? And last week we did a big introduction, I think. That could have possibly been at least two lessons, but you all made it through with me in one lesson. I've abandoned the board, so your eyes will thank me. You can, uh, we'll have everything up on the PowerPoint for you tonight. We'll try to be extra clear about where those blanks go. That's the thing about giving blanks. It helps you stay with me, but if I don't give you the blanks, you get mad at me for not giving you the blanks. <laughs> we'll try to give you all the blanks tonight and make sure we're on the same page. What is the church? And I told you last week that the church, according to the book of Acts, uh, when they were 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. Oh yeah, if you didn't get a handout, uh, they're, they're in the back. We can get you one if you need one. When the church was started on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled the believers there. 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom of God that day. The first churches were made from those 3,000 souls that were saved on the day of Pentecost. All those people that were in Jerusalem for that feast went back to their homes Back to their own nations, now filled with the Holy Spirit, believers in Jesus. And that's where we get the birth of the early churches and many of the early nations there in Acts. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We also looked at the marks of the church that come to us in the form of the Nicene Creed from the Council of Nicaea in the 300s, that the church of Jesus Christ is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And if Catholic just made you get a little wiry, go back and listen to last week's uh, lesson on what it means to be the Catholic church. Uh, Even we as Baptists belong to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Part of that, what it means to be apostolic, In fact, all of what it means to be apostolic is that we preach and we teach the apostles' doctrine. I told you that the Roman Catholic Church attempts to go by unbroken succession back to St. Peter and the apostles through the, the, the bishop of Rome or what they call the pope. And they try to say that that's their apostolic succession. So they say we are literally apostolic. But their doctrines have departed from the doctrine that Paul preached. And he said in Galatians chapter 1, If anyone preaches a different gospel than I have given to you, let them be accursed or cut off. So no matter how much we can point to some kind of unbroken succession from the apostle Peter in the church of Rome or any other church that claims that, It's by the doctrine and the teaching of the word that we're to judge something as apostolic or not. The preaching and the teaching that Paul and the apostles gave, is that what the church is still following? And if so, then you can call yourself an apostolic church. If you look at our church's icon or logo that's up there, you can see the top right-hand corner, top left-hand corner, sorry, is the Bible. 
And we're going to talk about that tonight. Why is that the first thing we go to? Why is that the first emblem we want? Why is everything that we do here centered and based on the scripture? We're going to talk about that tonight in our second part of this series. What is the church simply titled the word of God? Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10. You however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience... My love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray together before we continue. Oh Jesus, do what we cannot do for ourselves here in this hour. And that is, send your spirit into this place to open up your word to us. Open our eyes to receive it. And open our hearts to plant it deep within. And so become more and more like you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So I was struggling with uh, different ways to go about this whole topic. The word of God. Should Should I preach or teach just on the doctrine of scripture? We could talk about it being infallible, inspired, inerrant. We could talk about how it was written by all the different authors in the three different languages on the three different continents and how it contains only one story of God saving a people through Jesus Christ. We could go any number of places talking about the doctrine of scripture. I also thought about talking about inspiration by itself or this by itself or that by itself as a lesson. But it seemed if we're going to talk about what is the church and we're going to talk about a section called the word of God, we ought to talk about how the word of God functions in the local church. Instead of just talking about the Bible or what, 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 what we even believe about the Bible as First Baptist Church, I thought it might be a little more appropriate to not only talk about what we believe about the Bible, but what we believe the Bible does in the local church. What is the function of the scripture in our local church, in First Baptist Church. And I hope that will become clear tonight as we look at Paul's words to Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor, and he's attempting to tell Timothy how to do church. These are new churches. Timothy is a new pastor. And Paul is encouraging this young pastor how the church should look, what the church should do, what the church should be doing. And we see here that he comes to a climactic point in, in chapter 4, verse 5, or verse 3, when he says, Timothy, preach the word. 
Above all the things that you can do, stay rooted in sound doctrine and preach the word. That is what the pastor of the local church is supposed to do. Well, how does that apply to us as members of a local church sitting under preaching? What good can preaching do for us? Well, first of all, I just want to walk you through my outline. The four things I'm going to try to talk about tonight. The word of God is central to what we do as a local church because... One, the word of God converts us. Two, the word of God teaches us. Three, the word of God reproves and corrects us. And four, the word of God trains us. So number one, the word of God is central to what we do as a local church because it is the word of God that convicts us. Paul paints a vivid picture of what we are apart from Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, You... He was talking to the church at Ephesus, which is where Timothy happened to be the pastor, by the way. The book of Ephesians written to that church. But he's talking to us today, too. You who were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You who were dead in your sins and trespasses. I don't want that word to pass us over too quickly. It's easy to think of ourselves as being sick without Jesus. It's easy to think of being ailed because of not having Jesus. It's easy to think of needing medicine or some kind of simple remedy, just a simple fix, a quick fix, a simple correction. You get what Paul is saying here? Without Jesus Christ, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. We don't just need medicine. We don't just need a a quick fix or a a simple remedy. We don't just need some assistance. Don't you understand? If we're dead in our sins and trespasses, we need to be made alive. We need to be made spiritually alive. If our sins and our trespasses have us in the bonds of death, we need something to make us alive. This is exactly what it means to be regenerated. When you look at John chapter 3 and then Nicodemus comes in the night to Jesus and says, Good teacher, uh, what must a person do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Or we know that you're a teacher sent from God. And Jesus interrupts Nicodemus and says, In order to see the kingdom of heaven, everybody knows this, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused. As we all would be having, you know, we're, we're used to hearing that term as born again Christians. But think about poor Nicodemus hearing that for the first time. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And he says, well, how is that possible? Should I just go back into my mom's belly and come out again? Is that how this works, Jesus? And Jesus says, no. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be born again? Well, I just told you, you've been born physically and you are physically alive, but you are spiritually dead apart from Jesus. You need a spiritual birth. That's exactly what that means. You have your physical birth. You're not physically dead. You don't have a spiritual birth, though, because you are spiritually dead. You're spiritually in the bondage of your sin and your depravity. You need to be regenerated. That's exactly what it means to be born again. That's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 11 when Lazarus is lying dead in the tomb. What a picture of regeneration that is. I mean, this is a physical resurrection though. Lazarus has been in the the tomb for four days. He's begun to stink. But Jesus comes to the tomb and says, roll away the stone. And then he calls into the tomb and says, Lazarus, 
come forth. Jesus. Do you know what Jesus could have done to resurrect Lazarus? What did he do for the centurion's servant from a distance? He's healed. He's fine. Jesus didn't have to come to Bethany. Jesus didn't have to come to Mary and Martha. Jesus didn't have to roll away the stone. Jesus didn't have to say anything. But Jesus speaks into the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. We start most of our worship services with a call to worship from the Bible. And you might wonder why we do that. Why, why it is that we need to start off hearing from God. Well, we're all saved. You know, I'm assuming that when we come into this place to worship, we assume that we're coming here as saved people to worship. We know that there are lost people in the midst and that they need to hear the gospel. But by and large, the church gathers because the church is saved and wants to worship God who saved them. So when we come into this place, coming out of the deadness... You're following? Following the deadness and the sin of the world. We come out of the profane and into the sacred. And we hear God's invitation, his call. Not mine, not whoever is reading, but God's call from the scripture. Come, sing unto the Lord. The word of God going to our dead souls. Bringing us to life to worship him. That's exactly what needs to happen when we are saved. We need reviving. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Let's talk about how the word of God does this. When you were lost, when you were apart from Christ, before you were saved, before you were converted, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, as was I and as is everyone else who's apart from Jesus Christ. But something happened in a moment or over a long period of time in which the Lord began to take that heart of stone And convert it or change it into a heart of flesh. And he didn't just do that willy-nilly without any tools, without any means. God used his word to do that. The preaching of his gospel, the preaching of his word and the Holy Spirit. Look how it works for Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37. Starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord... And set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold they were very dry. And he said to me son of man can these bones live? And I answered O Lord God you know. And he said to me prophesy over these bones. And say to them O dry bones hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe on the slain that they may live so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army there's a, there's a book just waiting, <laughs> waiting to be written from Ezekiel there. The rattling that comes by the preaching of God's word. Do you see what's happened here? There's a valley of dry bones. 
and God brings Ezekiel to the midst. And it's not just a, some kind of strange vision that God's giving Ezekiel. God's showing Ezekiel what his purpose is as a prophet, a foreteller of the words of God. This is what you are doing for me, Ezekiel. In the midst of a dead and a dry people, your word is going out that is really my word in you. And as it goes out, those dry bones are rattling and coming together. And then as they are made alive, prophesy to the breath and the breath fills them. Isn't it interesting that the Greek word for spirit from which we get the Holy Spirit, pneuma, is breath or wind. Just like God breathed into Adam and made him a living soul. When the word of God goes out in the power of the spirit, dead people are made alive. And that's the miracle of regeneration. That as the word is preached from this pulpit or taught in your Sunday school classes or proclaimed on the street corners or in houses or wherever the word of God is proclaimed in truth and in power, the Holy Spirit is working and he is doing his job going forth quickening dead sinners, raising them from the dead to see the glories of Christ and calling them to respond in faith and repentance. It's the word of God that converts us. That is the single primary tool that God uses to convert sinners. That's why Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God to salvation. And then Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the the power. The power is in the word. The power is in the proclamation of that word because the Holy Spirit is doing his job raising people from the dead. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Sinners are made alive by hearing the word of God. In Titus chapter 3, we can go back to 2 Timothy if you want, but you don't have to turn to Titus. It's just one book over if you want to. In Titus 3, 5, Paul says that regeneration is like a washing with the Spirit. It's a washing of the Holy Spirit. This, this idea of being born again or regenerated and the word goes forth and sinners are revived and brought to spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is washing them. It's not a reference to baptism because Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 5. We read it just last week about how uh, Christ is the head and Christ is the groom and the church is his bride. And he has made her a bride without spot or without blemish and he has made her holy. And it goes on to say, by the washing of regeneration through the word. So regeneration comes over us like a washing. We are born again like something is pouring over us, like the Holy Spirit is overshadowing us and pouring his life onto us like a washing. And what is the tool God is using to do that? The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ washing over us and bringing us to spiritual life. Think about what happens in creation in Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing The earth was without form and it was void. It was in darkness, literally. It was in turmoil and chaos. There was nothing there. And listen to this. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. The spirit of God was at work energizing God's work in creation. And then what happens? What's the very first thing we see? And God said... Let there be light. Let there be light. And God continues to say things. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says this. 
Actually, just turn to Romans chapter 10 with me. We'll read this together. This is a long bit, so it's good for us to follow along. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then will they call on him on whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. And then verse 17. So faith, which saves, comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So follow Paul's logic here. To be saved, they must call on the name of Jesus. To call on the name of Jesus, they must believe on Jesus. To believe on him, they must hear about him. And to hear about him, someone has to proclaim him to them. And in order to be a proclaimer or a preacher, someone has to be sent to them. This is God's glorious design in using human means to accomplish his eternal purposes, to accomplish the salvation of his people. He sends forth preachers just like you and me, not just preachers, proclaimers like you and like me. All of us have the great commission and we're to go into the uttermost ends of the earth, to our neighbors, to our community, to our Avon Park, to our state, to our nation, wherever, and proclaim the gospel with our mouths, to open up and say what God has said. And then let God do the saving. It's right there in Romans chapter 10. They have to hear to be saved. And they have to hear what? The word of Christ. So the word of God is what converts us. Number two. Okay, so that's the foundation. We're converted. We're in the church, the big C church. Therefore, we've come to the little C local church. That's where we find ourselves after being converted and brought into fellowship with God. Now... Let's look at what Paul says. The word of God teaches us, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The word of God teaches us. This word teaching is sometimes rendered doctrine. And when we talk about doctrine in the church, whether it's the doctrine of this or the doctrine of that, we're talking simply about the teaching of. What our church teaches about the doctrine of the Bible is simply the teaching of on the Bible, what we teach about the Bible. When we talk about the doctrine of salvation, we're talking about the teaching of salvation, what it means. But it can also be boiled down to mean something very applicational. In fact, no doctrine is worth anything unless it makes a difference in our lives. Remember when I spoke from Isaiah chapter 11, I was talking about how we can know about God without knowing him, but we cannot know God without knowing about him. God influences our mind, fills our mind and our hearts with his thoughts based on what we see here. And that way he is teaching us about himself. And the spirit who knows the very mind and the soul of God conveys that to our souls and our spirits in such a way that when we hear the word preached, we are being brought into the presence of God and he is teaching us. He is leading us. He is guiding us. Another word for teaching could simply be instruction. Instruction. When we look at the Old Testament, the first five books are sometimes referred to as the Torah. The Hebrew word Torah simply means the instruction or the teaching. And this could refer sometimes to the first five books only. It could refer to the prophets. It could refer to Jewish tradition. It could refer to the, old, the whole of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as we know it. No matter what you're referring to, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, knew God's words as God's instruction, his teaching. 
there was something that was being revealed about God, but there was something that was also coming out of what was being revealed about God that told us how to live in light of who God is. In other words, they didn't just have thoughts about God that filled their mind. God didn't just say, I am the Lord and I'm holy. Stop. He went on to say, now here are my 10 commandments, which I expect you to follow. The Lord was always revealing himself so that we might learn how to live and to be like him. That's what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us about God so that we might be like God. You might say, of course the Bible is good for teaching. You might have in mind that it simply helps us know how to live. You might go to it for a bit of medicine every now and then if you're, if you're sad or lonely or depressed or, and we just need a little pick-me-up from the Psalms or something. We sometimes talk, talk about God's word as God's love letter to us. We talk about it as a direction book on how to live life. But it's that, but it's so much more. The Bible is not just an instruction book. It's not just a book of directions. It's not just a how-to book. It's not just a book of promise verses that we can claim when we're sad or whatever or angry. The Bible is God's own self-revelation of himself to creation. It's his own revelation of himself. You understand how important that is to us. We have what's called general revelation in the creation, we can look around us and see the rain and the skies and the Grand Canyon and the stars. And, and we say, wow, there's something beyond us, but we don't know who or what he or it or she or whatever is. That's what leads to idolatry because our sin looks at the creation rather than the creator. That's why God has to give us what we call special revelation, where he speaks words that we can understand beyond the stars and the mountains and everything else. And he says, this is who I am. And he reveals himself to us in that special way. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. And in that way, he teaches us about himself. What about in the New Testament? Look at Jesus' own great commission. In the great commission, Jesus says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right there in the Great Commission, Jesus builds in teaching. Not just making people converts, but then teaching them how to live in light of what they have been converted to. Too often, the evangelical church has failed in this regard. Since the birth of what we call revivalism or the revivalistic movement through D.L. Moody and Billy Graham and, and people like that, godly honored men are not taking away from what they have done. But what it has made happen in the church is that we oftentimes view our worship services on Sunday morning primarily as an evangelistic crusade that's primarily geared towards the unsaved. Now, while we ought to be mindful of unsaved lost people in our congregation on Sunday morning, the Sunday morning worship service is here for the feeding of the flock so that they can be taught and discipled. And for a very long time, the evangelical church struggled with this. We were so concerned, and rightly so, with getting people saved in our Sunday morning worship services that we barely went beyond the gospel And not that we ever leave the gospel, but the gospel is the foundation of everything that comes after it. Jesus says, make disciples and then teach them, disciple them, go further and go deeper 
so that they can go share the gospel and get people saved. And then they come here and learn and feed on the meat of God's word. It's built right there into the Great Commission. Go make disciples and then teach them. And our number one tool, our only tool in the church for teaching people is the word of God. If it ever goes beyond that to something else and we need something else to help teach people, we've gone somewhere that God does not want us to go. We don't need anything else beside the word of God. So in the local church, we hear the scriptures read, we hear them preached, we hear them taught. Remember, all preaching is teaching, but not all teaching is preaching, so we have to distinguish them a little bit. In all of these instances, it's the word of God that is at work. He's like a, a, a sculpt, a, what would you call it when someone sculpts something? I'm going to look at a sculptor. <laughs> I was thinking sculpture, but that's what the thing is. God is like a sculptor chiseling away at the thing, hammering away. Or like a blacksmith or a coppersmith that's hammering away at that piece of, of metal to make it into something. That's what the word of God is doing. It is the primary tool we use to teach people and to form them to become more and more like Jesus. And we shouldn't lay aside doctrine, though. All this talk about applicational teaching and learning how to live, we also have to understand that God intends for us to learn how to live by learning who he is and by learning doctrine. That's a scary word for some people. We don't like to talk about doctrine and theology because it often means that there's going to be an argument because we can't agree on some things, and that's fine. God uses his word to bring us into that place. So like our iron... Iron sharpens iron. My North Carolina was coming out in me there. My iron sharpening iron. Iron sharpening iron, we might be sharpened and made better in the discussion of doctrine and theology. Often when we interpret the Bible, we also try to interpret it by what is being said to us personally. So we read passages like John chapter 13 through John chapter 15, and we hear Jesus telling the disciples in the upper room... The Holy Spirit will come and lead you into all truth. And so we might read that in a time of doubt or something and we immediately think, oh, God said the Holy Spirit's going to lead me into all truth. Well, yes and no. God was saying that through Christ to his disciples. So that by learning the apostolic teaching, we can know that we are being led into all truth through them. You see how that works? We can't just willy-nilly interpret the Bible the way we want to. We have to learn who it was being said to, what the context was, the historical context, the literary context. And that sounds like a lot of work, but oftentimes all you have to do is go to the beginning of the book and see Paul to the Romans or Paul to the Ephesians and learn the time in which they were living. See what Paul is saying to the Romans before immediately trying to apply it to yourself. So before we try to understand what is being said to us, we need to understand what was being said to them. And then we ask the Holy Spirit to help us learn and help guide us in that way. And that way the word of God continues to teach us. Number three, the word of God is central to what we do as a local church because the word of God reproves and corrects us. So far there's been no harm done. We like teaching. We're fine listening to someone, you know, prattle on for 30 to 40 minutes every week or go to Sunday school or whatever. We're fine with teaching. We're we're fine with that conversion experience that happened when the preacher preached and we were a little bit convicted and we responded in faith and repentance and then we're fine with teaching week in and week out and a little bit of preaching. But when we get into the reproof and the correction, things get a little bit painful. 
In Jeremiah chapter 18, the prophet is called to go down to the potter's house. And there at the potter's house, he sees the potter with the lump of clay on the wheel, turning it and making it into something. And the word says that the the lump became marred. It became misshapen or deformed in the potter's hand. And so he made it into something else. And we have to speculate about what that would have done, but typically the the potter doing that would have applied more pressure here, more pressure there, sometimes even slamming it onto the wheel or discarding it completely before picking it up, kneading it and working it before making it into something else. Either way, when we come to this idea of being reproved or being corrected, it's a painful process. The word reproof literally means exposing or showing something that's wrong in a person's life and thought. It's the exposing of something that we thought was deep down. Reproof, it just means to prove, to show. And in this instance, Paul is talking about opening up and showing that deep, dark side of you that you know is there, or maybe you didn't know was there. Certainly everyone around you does not know it's there. But the word of God is like Hebrews chapter 4 right here. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom they must give account. This is a painful process. It seems like this is a painful process because we see reprove set right beside correct. Reprove. And correct. The Bible, the scriptures, Paul says, are good for reproof and for correction. And the word correction literally means setting straight, setting straight or realigning. Anybody ever had problems with TMJ or the, the jaw disorder, the little joint inflammation that happened there? Did anybody have the surgery? No. To to fix that surgically, what they do is they literally go in, cut away a portion of the jawbone or that little little point where that joint is becoming inflamed, and then allow the jaw to reheal. Right? Anybody ever had broken bones that you didn't get addressed immediately? Okay, you know what they do to broken bones that aren't addressed immediately? You know what happens to them? They grow back deformed and broken, and they heal like that. So what do you think happens when you go to the doctor and they're like, wow, you've had a broken arm and you didn't come get it fixed and it's starting to heal that way. Guess what gets to happen to you? Rebreak it so it can heal the right way. So the doctor can break it and then set it correctly, which is what should have happened the first time. Well, without trying to draw too much of a parallel here, we as human beings already said we were dead, but we are indeed broken. And by the time we get to God, by the time God gets to us through the gospel, it's too late to save yourself. There's no saving yourself. There's no resurrecting yourself that's going to happen here. God has to do the correcting. And even after we're corrected in the course of the Christian life through what we call sanctification, God uses pain and suffering and trials and hardships just like that potter kneading that clay or the ironsmith hammering on the piece of metal, or that surgeon that has to break the bone in order to reset it, God must sometimes break that portion of us that needs to be broken in order for it to be made right and for it to heal properly. This is a painful process. It can be more painful than we can even bear at times. Reproof is cutting. Reproof is breaking. 
Reproof is looking into that part of you and exposing it. It's painful. It's like that sword of Hebrews chapter 4 going in and cutting and dividing. It hurts. Sometimes it might not come in the the, the way of physical pain or discomfort or anything like that. It might just come spiritually through a seemingly dark time in your life spiritually. And God is trying to elevate and expose those things and break those bones so that they might be reset and healed properly. Reproof is messy business, but only by reproving can we be made right. Can we be corrected and set straight and back on the straight and narrow path? Just like that song we sang, Oh Church Arise, there's the sword that makes the wounded whole. As it cuts and as it pierces and as it divides, it is healing. That's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that reproves and corrects us. Lastly, the word of God is central to what we do as a church because the word of God trains us. On the surface, this one may seem a little bit redundant. Training might seem a lot like teaching. When we think of training, we might think about training for a new job or or going to training at school if you're a teacher before school comes in or we talk about orientation training and and all these things that we're trained for, training a pet or training a child. And and we sometimes get lost in in all the training that we do. Training surely does involve teaching. There's an amount of teaching that goes into training, but training in the biblical sense refers to discipline. Discipline so as to bring something or someone to maturity. It's often applied to children. We talk about in the Bible training up a child in the way he should go. It seems that it involves not only discipline but sometimes punishment or chastisement. That we're applying to something not to hurt it, not to harm it, not to cause it pain for the sake of causing it pain. But in order to bring it to maturity like you would prune a bush or a flower or an herb or something. Or like you would punish a child. It's not punishment for the sake of punishment or hurt or cutting away or damaging. It's for the sake of making it better. And this kind of goes hand in hand with, for, with reproof and correction, training, being disciplined as a godly man or a godly woman in the body of Christ. More often than not in the Bible, especially with Paul, he's talking about training as an athlete might train for something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating into the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul is immediately tying together very closely how an athlete trains for his event and how we are to train ourselves to godliness. In fact, Paul says in another place, bodily exercise profits a little Train yourself rather unto godliness so that godliness and sanctification and becoming holy is like a, tr- a runner training for a marathon. Brother Randy, who was with us this morning, runs a lot, I believe, and I don't think that he ever just got out to a race and just ran a marathon. He's ever run a full marathon? No? Half marathons? No? Quarter marathon? I don't even know how they're divided. <laughs> he's, he's, run, he's run long races, but you don't, someone like me, okay, we get out there, we start trying to run five miles, we're probably going to die, all right? Without training. 
And just looking up how people train to run these races, they start out small with short runs and they build and build and build and they're exercising and they're cross training, doing aerobic and strength training on the side and they're jogging and they're walking. There's all these elements that go into training for this one event. Think about how much more as Christians running the race of godliness and sanctification, we have to train ourselves to become holy. But we're not training just for a race or an athletic event, or one event, one game, one exercise. We're training to become more like Jesus Christ, who himself is the righteous one. Again, remember, justification. When God set you free, when you repented and confessed in Jesus Christ, you were saved, God justified you. That was a one-time act of conversion. It's what we call monergistic It's from the top down. Monergistic as in there's only one person working. Mono and energy, one working. God is the one who is working in justification. You don't help him out in your salvation process and he says, okay, not guilty. God is top down saving you, okay? Sanctification, however, is synergistic. Sin meaning with and energy again working. So with working. We're working with God in sanctification, How do you say that? Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this shocking phrase. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Anybody ever read that in your Bible before? Work out your own salvation. Now, I'm very confused now. Pastor Matt, I thought that we were saved by grace through faith and not because of works. And I thought you just said it was God that was doing the work, not us. How then can you turn around? How can Paul turn around and say, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling? You see what Paul says right after that in verse 13? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. Remember last week I talked about positional sanctification. That in Christ we've already been declared holy and righteous and saved. We're already that declared by God. That's our position in him. But sanctification is that race we're running. Aiming toward the goal. Aiming toward the prize. Training ourselves. Running the race. Fighting the fight. Paul says it's not as if I've already attained that to which I am called. But I'm pressing toward it. Through Christ Jesus. You've already been declared righteous in other words. Now act like it. Work out of your salvation. You have been declared saved. Now work out of that. Work out of your salvation. Train your salvation. Train your new man to be more and more like Jesus Christ. But don't ever think that it's you doing it by yourself. Although the command comes to you to work out your own salvation. Paul immediately follows it up saying. But it is God who is at work in you making you able and listen to this closely he's even making you willing to work for his good pleasure wow that's what we call complementarianism that's a big word that just simply means God has given you a responsibility and you are responsible for doing it work out your own salvation but it's God who's enabling you to do it and to be willing to do it. You see how that works greatly together. Man's responsibility, God's divine grace and sovereignty working hand in hand. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. How? With what? A trainer trains with dumbbells and weights and exercise equipment of various sorts that I've never seen. Teachers train with tools and instruments and curriculum and lesson plans. What do we train with as Christians? We train with the word of God, the Bible, the law, the gospel. All 66 books, Paul says, are profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and for training. Training in all righteousness. Because of all this, because of what Paul has said, because of all of this stuff that the Bible does for us in the local church, That's why Paul builds to his climax at the beginning of chapter four and says, because the Bible is good for teaching, because the Bible is good for reproving and for correcting and for training in all righteousness, because it is completely sufficient for everything you need, Timothy, and the local church and believer, because of all that the Bible does for us as believers, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's big charge, isn't it? He's charging him in the presence of Jesus Christ and by his coming and by his kingdom. Paul is like, I triple dog dare you to preach the word. No matter what else you do, Timothy, no matter what else you do in the local church, make sure you are preaching the word. Make sure the word is being proclaimed. Make sure the word is being taught and spoken and said. That's why you cannot have church without the preaching of the word. I remember that in my church growing up and we would have song services that would last and people would just get carried away with the motion and by the end of the time the preacher didn't preach and nobody sets up and they'd still go home thinking they had had church but there can be no church without the preaching and the proclamation of the word of God because only the proclamation of the word of God brings dead sinners to life. Only the preaching of the word of God reproves and corrects the saint and only the preaching of the word of God is able to train you into all godliness. That's why here at First Baptist Church the word is central to what we do. It is the first thing you see in our emblem that we are founded and built on the word of God. That's why we come to church. That's why there is a church. That's why we do what we do. That's why there are Sunday school classes that teach because God said, my word shall be central. I'm gonna close simply with a quote by John Piper who said, if you wanna hear God speak audibly, Read the Bible out loud. How many have ever wanted to hear God speak out loud to you? I know I've said it, prayed it many times. John Piper says, read the Bible out loud. How true that is. I lied, I am gonna read one more quote from Jonathan Edwards and then I'm gonna close. Jonathan Edwards, preacher in the first great awakening said, some people actually imagine that the revelation in God's word is not enough to meet our needs. They think that God from time to time carries on an actual conversation with them, chatting with them, satisfying their doubts, testifying to his love for them, promising them support and blessings. As a result, their emotions soar. They are full of bubbling joy that is mixed with self-confidence and high opinions of themselves. 
The foundation for these feelings, however, does not lie within the Bible itself, but instead rests on the sudden creations of their own imagination. These people are clearly deluded. God's word is for all of us and each of us. He does not need to give particular messages to particular people. That's shocking, isn't it? We like to think of God, you know, speaking to us one-on-one, but God has spoken once and for all. And what he has spoken, he's spoken to his people. And though the Holy Spirit applies it to you individually, there are no new words from God. You shouldn't expect any new revelation from God, any new direction or message or gospel or anything from God. He's given it once and for all. Peter says it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. And it's going to get darker and darker and darker. You're going to need a lamp. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this night that you've given us to study your word. We ask that above all things, your word and your name would be exalted. That your son, Jesus, would be clearly seen in everything we do. Primarily through the preaching and the teaching of your holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word. Help us to live for that. Help us to stand on that. And as these days grow darker and darker and more challenging, help us to rely on the light of your word and the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. That's all for this edition of Living Faith. Stay connected to the teaching and preaching ministry of First Baptist Church by subscribing to this weekly podcast using your computer or mobile device. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet every Sunday for worship at 1045 a.m., and 6 o'clock p.m. We invite you to join us if you don't currently have a church home and are looking for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed with power and clarity. You can find access to all of this and much more by visiting our website at fbcap.net. We look forward to connecting with you. Until then, this is Living Faith.